Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 1.30, The Introduction of Slavery. We are done getting all of our colonies up on their feet, at least those that were in existence before 1650, and we are now quickly approaching the end of our first season here at the Political History of the United States. However, before we wrap things up next time, there is still a subject that I need to address this season. Specifically, we need to talk about slavery. Slavery has been a bit of an elephant in the room for a while now, and it is an institution that is going to completely transform the United States and its history. We are still feeling the ripples from slavery, and I imagine we'll continue seeing those effects for the foreseeable future. Slavery has been part of the colonial story nearly the entire time. However, as of this point, it really has not been a big part of the narrative that I've been telling. Part of the problem is deciding how to address the origins of slavery in the colonial United States is more complicated than one would imagine. It is surprisingly difficult to assign a single date or time when slavery began in the colonies. Furthermore, it can be hard to figure out just what qualifies as slavery. For example, what about indentured servitude? What about indentured servitude where the person has no choice in becoming an indentured servant? These are the questions that need to be answered and it is what we are going to work through for today. From right around the time I started working on our Jamestown episodes, I have struggled on how exactly to introduce this idea. I ended up deciding that I would do an entire season and then circle back and address the question. Now, admittedly, I do now wish that I had gone back and addressed this from the beginning and better incorporated it. However, by the time that I realized this, it was just too late to go back and introduce it, so I went ahead with the original plan. Today, however, we are going to finally tackle those questions. We are going to look at where slavery got started in the colonial United States, where it flourished, and why, as well as how slavery affected the different regions. To begin today, I'm going to give a very quick rundown on the origins of the slave trade. The slave trade was something that was complex both in its size and implementation. It's more than I'm wanting to dive into, so really what my hope is here is just to give enough of a background that we are in a place where we can address the questions of the slave trade as it specifically applies to the English colonies. There is no way to sugarcoat the horrors of slavery, nor should any attempt be made to downplay what happened. Whereas Europeans found themselves coming over to dangerous conditions by choice, Africans had no choice in making that journey. The slave trade began in earnest when the Canary Islands were conquered by the kingdoms of Castile during the 15th century. The locals, known as Gaunches, were forced into slavery. The slavery itself is nothing new, it's existed throughout history. The difference that comes with 16th century slavery and for the centuries to follow is the sheer size of the maritime operations. Slavery suddenly became a business venture and one that carried with it large profit margins. Whereas the original purpose of Europeans settling the west coast of Africa had originally been hopes of finding gold, quickly it was discovered that the commodity that really brought in the profit wasn't a precious metal at all. It was the export of people. Well, the first slaves made the transatlantic journey in 1526. The slave trade had actually been active for about 80 or so years before that. In that case, the slaves were being brought up into Portugal proper. However, as the new world began to develop, very quickly labor became a problem. For a European adventurer heading to the new world, the dream was finding gold and silver. Settling down and creating a farm? Yeah, not so much. Why would anybody leave the comforts of Europe to go off to either go broke or starve to death? For a very large number of the people making the trip over, therefore, they were not looking to go start farms. Rather, they were going to look for treasure. 
everybody wanted to be the next Cortez. And if by some miracle you don't starve to death, you'll probably be dead before long from disease. We have talked at length throughout this podcast about how being a colonist isn't exactly a profession for those who want to live into old age. Despite these risks, European nations quickly become aware that there is real money in the New World, and that real money is not tied up in just precious metals, but rather the potential for hugely valuable crops like sugar and then later tobacco. Crops that just so also happen to be very labor-intensive. Now, at first, the logical choice was to simply press the conquered Indians into servitude. However, this caused a lot of problems. Beyond the very real concern over slave revolts, the Europeans from time to time relied on the Indians. Enslaving them was not a wonderful long-term plan to the survival of Europeans in the Americas. African slaves, however, made far more sense. It is not as though the Europeans were in a land surrounded by angry Africans. The Native Americans weren't exactly anxious to engage the Europeans either on behalf of the Africans. Africans could therefore be forced into slavery in the New World with very little risk. By the middle part of the 1500s, the Atlantic slave trade was off and running. Africans were being captured from the West African nations, loaded onto boats, and shipped off to the New World. To call the conditions on these transport boats anything less than hellish would be downplaying how seriously terrible the conditions actually were. Those who survived, and to be clear, survival really was not clear when you got put on those boats, found themselves being put in plantations, in mines, or helping build the infrastructure necessary for European settlement. Involvement in the slave trade had spread to several nations by this point, as well as to the Catholic Church. Needing the manpower to help build cathedrals, the church used slaves. Many of these cathedrals remain standing to this day, such as the Cathedral Metropolitana Basilica de San Juan Bautista in Puerto Rico. The slave trade was big business, and there was a huge amount of money involved. Throughout the 16th century, we see attempts by numerous groups to intercept slave ships, just so they can capture and sell the slaves for themselves. These men, who were often privateers, were operating at the behest of their home countries. Recall way back in episode 1.3, we met Sir Francis Drake? Well, Drake's primary means of earning an income was by attacking the Portuguese settlements along the west coast of Africa, capturing their slaves, and then selling those slaves directly to the Spanish. The slave trade was always a complex thing. Putting aside any of the obvious moral objections, the slave trade became big business nearly overnight. It was a tremendously profitable venture and was a critical component in building the new world. The slave trade is, however, immensely complicated and detailed. There are all sorts of attempts to justify the trade, and quickly a reliance on the availability of slaves emerges. And my little five-minute overview here doesn't do any real justice to the issue. Instead, I was simply trying to give you a quick idea of how the slave trade itself came to be, to the extent that it makes our next discussion points a bit easier to understand. As this podcast is focused on the political history of the United States, our real focus for the remainder of this episode is going to be with slavery in the North American English colonies. Slavery quickly became a fixture in the colonies and is something that existed throughout the colonial United States. As you will see as we continue to discuss today, slavery existed in all the areas that we have so far discussed. Virginia, New England, New York would all be places where people were held in bondage. Right from the beginning, we see the practice of indentured servitude in Virginia. Indentured servitude was a system whereby a person would pay with years instead of money in order to cross the Atlantic. Unsurprisingly, the cost of a transatlantic trip was expensive and was something beyond the means of many of those who ended up in Virginia. 
Remember also that a lot of the people who made the trip to Virginia were vagrants from the country who were flooding into London. London, anxious to reduce the urban population of homeless, stuck them on boats and sent them off to Virginia. Now, these poor people couldn't afford food, let alone to pay their passage from England to Virginia. The way that they made it to Virginia is that more wealthy settlers paid their way. In order to repay these more wealthy settlers, they would be entitled to a period of servitude from the person whose passage they just paid for. These periods of servitude typically lasted for seven years, and then the person was free to do their own thing, and were often themselves given a small piece of land. Later, in an attempt to get the population of Virginia to grow, in light of the high mortality rate, the Virginia Company would also begin granting generous land grants for each person that a wealthy colonist brought over. Indentured servitude today is considered to be a form of slavery, and it was rendered illegal with the passage of the 13th Amendment following the American Civil War. It is difficult to say how much the urban poor from London really had a say in making their journey and becoming an indentured servant. However, despite this, the system initially proved to be very popular. Life in Virginia was hard. Tobacco was a very labor-intensive crop, requiring large swaths of land. Indentured servants were critical to providing the labor force necessary to cultivate the tobacco crops. Yet, despite this largely being considered a form of slavery today, this still feels distinctly different from African slavery. And the difference really is twofold. First, but importantly not always, the indentured servant had at least some choice in the matter. Secondly, the period of indentured servitude had an expiration date. After seven years, the person was free to do their own thing and typically got a little bit of land out of it. The obvious problem with indentured servants, however, is that after seven years, they were free and, if you were a wealthy landholder, suddenly you found yourself needing labor. You can choose to hire the former servant as an employee, or you can bring over another indentured servant and begin a second period of seven years. With African slavery beginning to proliferate, however, it quickly became the preferred method. Well, at first, at least in Virginia, African slaves were essentially treated as indentured servants, getting their freedom after seven years. This would end up quickly giving ways to periods of lifetime bondage. With such high demand for a workforce, purchasing a person who was then going to remain in bondage for life, as opposed to seven years, proved to be the better economic decision. Now, initially, indentured servitude remains the primary way people were getting the labor necessary. African slaves were expensive and few could afford to import them from the Caribbean where they would have initially been imported. The first Africans entered Jamestown on a Dutch ship in 1619. While we know that they were there, thanks to a dire entry from Governor Yardley, we know little else about them. While the evidence seems to suggest that they were probably slaves, the best we have in this case is guesses. And now again, regardless of their status during those early years of the Virginia colony, slaves were essentially indentured servants. Just like those coming from England, the first wave of Africans gained their freedom after a period of servitude. Now, of course, the distinction must be made that despite the fact that freedom was something attainable to Africans being brought into the colony, they had zero say in being brought into the colony. I say this because it is critical to remember that despite the fact that the initial slavery wasn't necessarily a lifetime conviction, we are still talking about human beings being taken against their will and forced into labor. It is also worth noting that the period of servitude was often much longer than the customary seven years that we see with Europeans. These periods could run 20 years plus. Surviving an additional 20 years as an adult in the 17th century was far from a sure thing, even less so if you're living in Virginia, even less if you're living in the harsh conditions that the slaves did. 
In this way, despite freedom being theoretically attainable, for many slaves, it was in fact going to be a lifetime commitment. Information regarding African slaves and their status in Virginia is murky at best. While slavery existed in the colonies, it did not exist back on the home islands. Therefore, there is no history that we can look back to to see how the legal system for slaves really worked. Furthermore, keep in mind that slaves made up a very small portion of the population of Virginia initially. By the middle part of the 1630s, the population of Virginia was right around 7,500. At the same time, there were only around 200 slaves. Because they were still a relatively small proportion of the population, there was little push to clarify their status, which means that today we are left with nothing but educated guesses as to their place in society. It is not going to be until the 1660s that we see more slavery really develop and become a more common occurrence throughout Virginia. Due in large part to the Civil War, it can be far too easy to think that slavery was something that was completely restricted to the South. However, as we are going to discuss, this simply isn't true. In Massachusetts, for example, slavery persisted until the end of the 18th century and did not actually become illegal until the state ratified the 13th Amendment following the Civil War. Now, there will actually eventually be a spike in slavery in Massachusetts. However, initially at least, slaves remain relatively rare throughout New England. There is a good reason for this. In Virginia, we have a mix of people that are both extremely poor as well as another group that actually has some money. That large division in society meant that there were at least some people who had the means by which they could afford the high price of an African slave. In Massachusetts, however, conditions were much different. First, in Massachusetts, most of the settlers are solidly middle class, as far as there is actually a middle class in the 17th century. They had enough money to get themselves and their families across the Atlantic, however, that's really about it. They don't own the massive plantations, and there is no single cash crop like there is in Virginia. Therefore, the money needed to purchase slaves simply wasn't there. Likewise, as I mentioned a moment ago, there was no cash crop. Virginia had a need for labor, labor that the colonists alone simply were not capable or willing to provide. Tobacco is labor-intensive, and it requires a lot of manpower. Massachusetts was made up mostly of artisans who would then have small personal farms. Sure, the surplus from those personal farms was used to make some extra profit. However, these were small enough operations that slave labor really wasn't required. Despite the fact that the slave population remained low, again, at least initially, slavery was a thing in Massachusetts. It was enough of a reality that in the Massachusetts Body of Liberties, the idea of slavery is directly addressed. Item 91 of the Body of Liberty reads, There shall never be any bond slavery or captive amongst us unless it be lawful, captives taken in just wars, and such strangers as willingly sell themselves or are sold to us. And these shall have all the liberties and Christian usages which the law of God establishes in Israel concerning such persons do morally require. This exempts none of the servitude who shall be judged thereto by authority. Okay, so let's take just a few minutes here and break down what I just read. The first thing to notice is that this limits the practice of slavery in Massachusetts. However, it does not outlaw it. As I said just moments ago, slavery is going to die out in Massachusetts towards the end of the 18th century. However, it won't actually become illegal until the 13th Amendment is ratified. The first thing that the Body of Liberties lays out is that there shall be no slaves unless it is done in a lawful manner. 
Thankfully, instead of leaving us hanging, they go on pretty quickly to define just what this means. Captives taken in war are fair game, and this would be referring to the local Indians should they be captured during warfare. Moving on, they mention strangers who willingly sell themselves or are sold to use. Those who willingly sell themselves likely is referring to indentured servants. After all, that is really what an indentured servant actually is. They are people who willingly sell themselves into slavery as a means of securing passage across the Atlantic. The more interesting part comes in that second section, those who are sold to us. Now, this does come across as a bit of a cop-out for the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Essentially, here they are shrugging their shoulders for the methods by which slaves are brought to them. If it is a colonist in Massachusetts proper taking the slaves themselves, then they are limiting what they can do. However, if the slaves are being imported by a third party and sold to the colony, then that is going to be just fine. The Body of Liberties goes on to lay out that, and these slaves shall have all the liberties and Christian usages which the law of God establishes in Israel concerning such persons do morally require. This is a basic outline of the treatment that the slave owner was expected to exercise towards their slave. As the Puritans do basically with everything, their fallback is always going to be the Bible. What this is saying is consult the Bible, see what it says about the treatment of slaves, and do that. Finally, the body of liberties lays out a final way that a person can become a slave. The final line of the statute reads that this exempts none from servitude who shall be judged thereto by authority. This is pretty straightforward. Slavery is something that could be a punishment for a crime. The colony, and more specifically the general court, could sentence somebody to slavery as a method of punishment. Slavery is going to remain relatively limited, though it will continue to exist in New England. During the middle part of the 18th century, we will see a small uptick in slavery in Massachusetts. However, soon thereafter, a period of decline begins that will see Massachusetts on the path to becoming a core location for the abolitionist movement during the lead-up to the Civil War. When discussing the history of slavery in the United States during its earliest colonial years, it is critical that we look at the Dutch colony of the New Netherland. New Netherland not only utilized slavery, but used slaves in a fundamentally different way than we see in the other colonies during this period. The Dutch first arrive in what is now New York during 1624, and within the first years there we see the first shipment of slaves reach the colony. The first slaves into the New Netherlands were not slaves that had been personally captured by the Dutch, but rather slaves that had been captured from either the Spanish or the Portuguese. Likewise, we see a major difference in ownership when it came to the slaves. In the English colonies, we see slaves being held by private individuals. Prior to the founding of any of the colonies, England had done away with the institution of slavery back on the home islands. Well, this did not stop private individuals in the colonies from purchasing slaves. They themselves did not partake in the practice. What this means is, in principle, we don't see royal governments owning slaves, nor do we see the charter companies owning slaves. So, for example, the Virginia Company itself would not have owned slaves. However, the individuals in Virginia could. The Dutch did not have any such reservations. The Dutch West India Company not only owned slaves, but even after private slave ownership became permissible, they would remain the single largest slaveholder in that colony. The first batch of slaves was a mixed group of men and their wives. The women became home servants, while the men aided in what was a constant labor shortage throughout the colony. Early on, that meant mostly construction projects as the Dutch worked on building fortifications on what is now the island of Manhattan. As the Dutch colony had institutionalized slavery, 
we see a far more systematic approach to slavery than we see, for example, either in Virginia or New England. The Dutch had an actual government official whose job it was to oversee slavery within the colony. Unlike the more limited private use of slaves in Virginia, for instance, in the New Netherland, we see slaves being used nearly in every function of civil life. Interestingly, they were conscripted into service during Kaif's war. The evidence is that the slaves were armed, however, with striking tools and axes instead of muskets. Arming slaves is a dangerous proposition and one that the Dutch had no interest in doing. The importation of slavery by the Dutch West India Company was limited in time, not because of some moral awakening, but because the colony was constantly struggling to become profitable. When in the late 1620s, the Dutch began to scale back their project in the New Netherland, part of what they did was reduce the number of slaves that they personally held. These slaves were not granted their freedom, but rather they were leased by the colony to the colonists seeking to settle. When the West India Company began selling shares of its land to private investors, beyond the land and any structures that might be on it, we see that the slaves would also pass along to the new landholders. What we therefore see emerge in the Dutch system of slavery is twofold. The Dutch government, still concerned about labor shortages and for good cause as they were a reoccurring problem, would maintain a sizable slave population. Simultaneously, however, the Dutch quickly learned how profitable the importation of slaves were to individual settlers. Slavery therefore took on a dual track in the colony. There were government slaves as well as individual slaves. Slaves owned by the government were generally treated better than those being sold to the individual colonists. Those working for the government therefore had incentive to do good work, as poor work would result in them being sold off to an individual and likely into worse overall conditions. As a quick end to this story, the Dutch would end up freeing a large number of their slaves in 1664, right before they were defeated by the English. These slaves were generally those that were owned by the government itself, as the Dutch were not terribly anxious to surrender anything more than necessary to the English. Likewise, an argument does exist that the Dutch had already set the slaves on a path towards emancipation by granting them what was known as half-slavery. The concern was that the English laws would take over in the colony and it would deny these half-slaves the promised freedom previously owed to them. As to this being true, or if it was a last-minute emancipation in an attempt to keep the English from stealing the Dutch slaves is unclear. Also, to be clear, this only applies to those slaves owned directly by the Dutch government. It does not include slaves that were owned by individual colonists. Over those slaves, the government at this point had little control. Resulting from this sudden emancipation of slaves, the population of free blacks in New York was especially high. Despite, however, their freed status, this does not mark an end to slavery in the area. Upon the English taking over, we immediately see the same style of slavery that existed in Massachusetts and Virginia enter into the colony. New York, likewise, became a popular early spot for slave auctions. It did, however, mark the end of structured slavery that was run by the government itself within the United States. Slavery for the remainder of the history of the United States was something that existed at the individual level and not something that expanded up to the government itself. The government of the United States, both in colonial form as well as following gaining independence from the British, will never directly own slaves. Slaveholding is something that was from that point forward something that was held by the individuals in the colony. This seemingly minor detail is going to become critical later on, as it means that slavery was viewed as an individual right, especially in the southern states. 
Therefore, as the abolitionist movement grew in the North, there was a perception generally in the South that the North was directly trying to impinge upon their rights. This would, of course, become one of the major causes of the Civil War. When we reach that point, we are going to spend significant time discussing how the South had become so completely dependent on slavery and the implications of widespread emancipation throughout the South. This is, however, a story for another day. Well, 1619 serves as a perfectly fine date to mark the beginning of African slavery in the colonial United States. The fact remains that it is not going to be for several decades before we really see the proliferation of slavery throughout the colonies and into the future United States. Slavery begins as a slow trickle. Few had the money for slaves, and frankly, the importation of slaves north of the Caribbean was something that remained rare for quite a while still. At the same time, we are going to see an entirely different form of slavery appear in the Dutch colonies in New Netherland. This form of slavery was not simply government-sanctioned, but it was controlled by the colonial government in a far more systematic approach than what we will see in any of the other colonies, either before or after. In any situation, however, it seems almost a surprise that slavery begins so slowly when it is something that is ultimately going to come to completely change the political course of the nation. Slavery is something that is going to totally change the direction that the nation goes in the future and is going to open a rift that can still be felt to this very day. In that regard, today's episode is intended to introduce the institution of slavery, but it is far from the end of the episode on the matter. As we make our way through the coming seasons, we are going to increasingly see the impact of slavery on society as the number of slaves begin to increase dramatically. Slavery will be a core subject of this podcast as even after the emancipation of all the slaves and the end of the Civil War, a almost seamless transition into institutionalized racism would spread throughout the United States. This is going to lead to the passage of the Jim Crow laws and then later the Civil Rights Movement of the mid-20th century. Next time, we are going to bring our first season to a close. In order to do that, we are going to have the first of two episodes taking a step back, looking at where we have been and attempting to tie some of these loose strings together to set the stage moving forward. Now, before we finish today, I want to let you know that the next episode will not be out in two weeks like normal. That would put it out on December 22nd, and I'm going to be skipping that episode to take off a little bit of time around the holidays. However, the next episode will come out the following Sunday, which will be December the 29th. So it should only be a one week delay. We will then have our two review episodes and go straight into season two. There's not going to be a break between the seasons. So with that, I hope you all have a wonderful holiday season, and I will see you all back here in three weeks' time, and we will jump in to the final two episodes of our first season, and then move right forward into season number two.